Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.com. Christopher Shannon is professor of history at Christendom College. His writings include The Past as Pilgrimage, Narrative, Tradition, and the Renewal of Catholic History. That was co-authored with Christopher Blum. Uh, His new book is American Pilgrimage, A Historical Journey Through Catholic Life in a New World. Our topic today. Welcome, Professor Shannon. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, You open with Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yes. Uh, Why does our story begin with her? Okay. Well, um, normally, at least traditionally, you know, the story of America and certainly the story of the church in America begins in 1492 with Christopher Columbus. Uh, I begin with Our Lady of Guadalupe because I think in terms of the the history of the the church, certainly the Columbus and all the Spaniards were Catholics. There were Catholics in the New World before Guadalupe. But the faith doesn't really start to take root, uh, certainly among the native peoples, uh, until Our Lady of Guadalupe. And more than just that kind of historical phenomena, I think she's uh, her apparition and her story and her tradition is of, of the highest significance, not just for uh, the history of, of the church in kind of in Spanish uh, New World, but I think for the, the whole New World. I mean, she, her, her story, her presence, her image speaks to the newness of, of the church in the New World, because she's not just uh, the Virgin Mary appearing in the New World, like, oh, she can come here too. But again, her, her appearance uh, in the apparition, her appearance recorded in Matilma of looking like a native woman, I think it's maybe sometimes hard for us to appreciate how shocking that might have been uh, that that was at the time. But to me, indicated uh, not only that she was reaching out to the poorest of the poor, and that's that certainly is something that we see in many Marian uh, um, apparitions, even later in, in, in Lourdes, for example, but that there's a particular cultural dimension to the story of Our Lady Guadalupe that I think is really unique in uh, in the history of Marian apparitions and maybe even in, in the history of the church and that she wasn't just reaching out to the poor in the way that Our Lady of Lourdes reach, reaches out to poor Bernadette, but uh, a poor of a really a different culture, a poor that has been re- recently conquered, certainly by the Spanish, and is in just the very, very early stages of evangelization that aren't, that aren't going too well because, I mean, for obvious reasons, <laughs> the context of conquest isn't very uh, generally a fruitful one. But also the tremendous alienation and, and, and detachment, distance between the Spanish and the natives still at that point. And then with, with Guadalupe, the native peoples can start to see uh, not just Our Lady, but the faith as, as part of them, as, as really uh, you know, part of their lives. And speaking really uh, more directly to them, actually, than to the, the conquerors themselves. And this is, you know, this is a classic 
a trope of, of Christianity that uh, you know Jesus doesn't go to the high high ranking people of the time he goes to the the poorest of the poor but that that cultural dimension of the story of our lady of Guadalupe I think really sets the tone not just for future missionary work in the colonial period, but even for the, the church in what will become the United States, which uh, for most of its history, at least the, the immigrant church period, roughly middle of the 19th to the middle of the 20th century, uh, the church is multi-ethnic. And, and the, the, the challenge of, of the, the life of the church, again, from the middle of the 19th to the middle of the 20th century, was how to reconcile these ethnic traditions with, with a church that could thrive in America uh, adapting to the new conditions, particularly the new industrial urban conditions, but also uh, sustaining those older ethnic traditions. So it's it's not just a Mexican story. I think to me, it's it's a kind of a, a universal New World story. Uh, you 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 talk about <clears throat> Columbus's voyages, and I, I should tell our listeners this is a sweeping uh, study of several hundred years. Of, of Catholic life growing, developing in, in the new world. Just overall, how did evangelization typically proceed in the new world in maybe maybe the first first century, century and a half? Uh, well, very, very slowly uh, because uh, the, the, the territory of the new world was itself uh, just being settled. And, you know, again, unfortunately, as the, as the Spaniards moved out to you know try to claim more land, it was the uh, you know the evangelists, the missionaries would come, the missionaries and the soldiers, and so you would have a, a fort, a presidio as they call it, and the mission often um, establishing themselves at the same time and side by side, and there was actually uh, a lot of tension between the missionaries and the soldiers because they had they had different purposes. Now they they both shared the common. Uh, the common goal of expanding the Spanish Empire. There's, you know, the uh, the evangelists were all on board with that, but they saw how the uh, the treatment of the natives by the Spanish soldiers, who were there pretty much to get rich, you know, were not there necessarily to evangelize the natives. How that was undermining evangelization, and so there is wherever Spain expands, there is this uh, this conflict, and I think a conflict. Uh, identified and, and addressed most powerfully by Bartolomeo de las Casas. And this is from very early on um, in the first generation or so, maybe just a little bit, about 10 years or so after uh, uh, Columbus's uh, death. But where de las Casas, who, who comes to the New World first as a uh, as a kind of conquistador or something, he's a, he's a low-level church official and is just there to, oh, he's found out that he can have his allotment of Indian slaves and, and make some money like his father had been doing. But he is transformed by a sermon that he hears uh, denouncing the mistreatment of the natives and then las Casas spends the rest of his life uh, defending uh, the natives. And that was, uh, you know, that, well, you know I, I want to mention, Professor Shannon, one of the things that you point out, one of your, your assertions here in the book is that uh, while the Spanish were probably no better or worse than other conquerors uh, in their treatment of the conquered you know, over, over history, yeah. never before had there been such a spirited defense among the conquerors, among, at least by certain yes. people among the conquerors, of the dignity of the conquered yeah. than was provided by several members 
in in the church, and you, you, you'll stick with that historical assertion no, all the way. Uh, yes, I will. I mean, just you know, just think of the the comparisons that come to mind. Like, were the Roman was any any of the Romans, uh, you know, defending the Greeks or something? They might have appropriated a lot of their culture, but this idea of you know Rome conquers the uh, the Greeks and then says, "Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute, we have to." Uh, respect the dignity of the Greek people and, and, and all that, you know, just unimaginable or the, you know, the Assyrians or, you know, take the Persians, you know, take your, take your pick. And that uh, I, th- I think is, is really is unique in human history and is reflective of, of the Christian uh, character of this, of this conquest. And of course, you know, conquest, uh, not a nice word, but it's, there's no, nothing, no other thing to call it. No other, no other way to talk about it. But again, the, the bad stuff is fairly uh, uh, common with the rest of human history, but what is unique is this defense of, of the dignity of the conquered uh, as represented by De Las Casas. And then at the supernatural realm, I mean, the, the apparition of Guadalupe is just, you know, uh, unimaginable. I mean, that uh, against the kind of the crusading spirit of, of so many of these uh, conquistadors who still have that ethos in their, uh, in their soul, Coming to conquer, and you know, seeing the 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 barbarism, the barbarism of the civilized Az- Aztecs and human sacrifice, you could say like, hey, uh, if any cause is justified, it's this. But still, uh, Our Lady does not appear to them. You know, she appears to the poorest of the poor, and that's just a, a prof- profoundly Christian story, mm-hmm. uh, incredible story that really has to be at the at the heart of our understanding of the of the life of the Church in the New World. One interesting distinction you bring out is that in the evangelization, there were some marked differences between uh, the Dominicans and the Franciscans. What what were those differences? Yeah, well, the, um, the if it, just beginning with the responses to Guadalupe again. The, there's uh, we now kind of look back on that and see it as this uh, transformative moment, which it ultimately was, but. There was actually a lot of disagreement among the Franciscans and the Dominicans about the reality of Guadalupe. And the, the Franciscans, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I tend to think of Franciscans as, you know, peace-loving tree huggers or something. Or, uh, But they were actually a lot harder uh, on um, some of the, the natives and these native traditions uh, early on. And so uh, in the... We, uh, accounts from the 1550s where the Franciscans are actually kind of criticizing the, the Guadalupe cult and Dominicans are defending them. And, you know, there was, there were other groups, the, the uh, August, uh, Augustin, Augustinian canons were there, these different religious groups that at different times had different attitudes toward evangelization, particularly with how much of the native culture do you keep? How much, you know, what's acceptable and what is, well, that's just too pagan. And, you know, sometimes these differences came down to just the particular judgments of, uh, of particular uh, missionaries. Sometimes it did uh, reflect um, uh, other rivalries between religious orders, which have you know, certainly characterized religious orders from the start. Uh, even back in the you know the, the Middle Ages, the um, the Dominicans and the Franciscans were rumbling in the University of Paris and uh, in the universities of Europe. And some of these uh, again, these these religious order identifications did become tribal even in, in the New World. But I think in, in the balance of things, though, those rivalries are kind of part of evangelization. Uh, in the balance, they all. Uh, kind of conceded that there needed to be some uh, middle ground found, you know, that to, to, to look 
look for what the natural goods in the culture were and use them to try to uh, guide people to the faith and uh, ultimately realizing that it's, you know, <laughs> the conversion is the work of a lifetime and maybe even generations of lifetimes just because of the tremendous gap in understanding between the native peoples and the, uh, and the European Christians. Yeah. When you turn from Columbus in the Caribbean to Cortez in Mexico, you speak of a, quote, struggle for the Aztec soul. Uh, what, what, and not just, not just Aztec wealth, but the Aztec soul. What, what yeah. was, what was that? Uh, well, it was, it was the, um, the, the struggle to convert, uh, the Aztec people. Now, certainly, you know, it's Cortez again, he, you know, he, he wanted to get rich and he did for, for a while, but even Cortez, um, had evangelistic motives. And again, I'm not trying to whitewash anything or, or deny, uh, the brutality of, of the conquest, but just as a 16th century Spaniard, he was incapable of separating the two, you know, and hmm. so uh, he would, uh, you know, topple, uh, topple the, uh, the pagan temples, but then build churches often on those very sites because he saw it as part of his duty as a, uh, as a ruler to care for the souls of the people, even, you know, in this, this context of conquest. And so um, those two elements were always there. We moderns are uncomfortable with them being so close to each other and like to think that it's one or the other, one thing or the other. Uh, but they were both present there. Uh, certainly a desire for uh, Aztec wealth, uh, but a concern for the Aztec soul. And on the Aztec wealth front, I mean, I think it is, again, without getting into uh, too many apologetics or you know, being defensive about it, it's like, you know, the Aztecs were an imperial power in in Mesoamerica, you know, they were they had they'd conquered and dominated uh, many other groups of peoples and were and were sacrificing them by the tens of thousands on on their altars. So they're uh, you Actually, know I just I just saw some recent more recent material come out about the the volume of yeah, yeah. of the slaughter was hard for us to comprehend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is uh, with with a, with kind of pre-industrial production yes, <laughs> technology. Yes. Uh, yeah, and so there, there's nothing, uh, uh, and it doesn't take, you don't have to look too closely to see that the Aztecs are not uh, particularly uh, sympathetic. Uh, and they're, they're part of the things like with uh, getting back to De Las Casas is that, uh, you know, there, there are different native uh, groups that he, the kind of uh, abuses that he's talking about are, you know, were visited upon the people that had already been conquered by by the Aztecs. So, um, you know, he's not defending Aztec civilization or anything like that. I mean, Las Casas starts before they even get to Mexico. But so there are different native groups. Some are more sympathetic than others. Certainly the, the island, some of the island peoples that were more like your kind of Hollywood type of uh, noble savage, uh, certainly more sympathetic characters. But again, the, the great civilizations that they confronted in, in Mesoamerica and in Peru, these were uh, these were brutal empires. And... Um, you know, there's no way around that either. How, how overall, how well did evangelization proceed in Mexico yeah. after the conquest, the initial conquest? Yeah, uh, well, again, as, as I said with Guadalupe, fairly uh, slowly. And even with um, when the Guadalupe, uh, Guadalupe devotion starts, it, it's, it's really hard to, to judge. Some of the stories, the stories that are not really written down until the middle of the 17th century tell this account of you know, this, this kind of 
this miraculous conversion where once uh, once the tilna is revealed, then you know tens and thousands and then millions of of, of native peoples all kind of convert to uh, to the faith, and that's that is certainly an exaggeration. You know, it's much much more slow and and uneven. And the in, in this aside from just the the, the challenge of speaking to a, a people that are you know <laughs> uh, speak a different language and are from a completely different background, the church was uh, the resources of the church were fairly limited. Uh, at uh, in you know this is this is the hinterland of the world. You know, people sometimes. Skeptics will say, like, well, why wasn't uh, Guadalupe better documented? It's like, do you think people in Spain cared what was going on uh, among peasants in uh, in Mesoamerica? You know, the, right. uh, and so that the staffing was very difficult. Uh, often, uh, when you did get evangelists, that you you tended to get the ones that were uh, the worst. Sometimes, uh, you know, there's some great heroic examples toward the end, especially a figure like Jennifer uh, Sarah. But uh, so you have scarce resources, often uneven quality of, uh, of evangelists and just a vast, vast territory to deal with. Um, it's, I think it's what is what's significant is probably the, the most successful uh, evangelization efforts were in more settled areas. So, you know, the kind of certainly the, the what is now Mexico City is kind of the, the urban areas of, of Mexico and then up in what would become the united states new mexico the the pueblo areas um, I, I, I was going to jump ahead to junipero cerro and ask who, who was he and what was his vision of that network of missions yeah. from from san diego up to san francisco yeah well it's his story is an interesting example of uh, how it's again it's, it's hard to it's impossible to to uh, separate the politics from uh, from the faith that um, the reason why he is commissioned to go up and, and establish the, these missions is because the Spanish are afraid that the Russians are coming down uh, the western coast of North America and are going to take over their land. So they wanted to kind of plant that uh, Spanish flag hmm. uh, wherever wherever they could. But that uh, that process that you know we now uh, have the great California missions uh, as a kind of a legacy of. But the process proceeded, like I had mentioned before, where the mission and the fort kind of go uh, grow up side by side. And uh, Sarah's vision was very much to uh, to save the souls of uh, these Indians. And he saw, again, in the uh, behavior of the, the soldiers, the greatest obstacle, or at least put, the greatest obstacle on the Spanish side. The other obstacle, and this is this is a recurring theme both in the Spanish and in the, the French uh, experiences, is just the the nomadic nature of native life. You know, in in these in, in many of these areas, like in California, again, not not in New Mexico so much. They lived in settled communities, but in California, the Indians were um, uh, migratory, nomadic, a lot more like say the Indians of the Northeast. And all of these missionaries uh, insist that they can never really succeed in evangelization unless they establish settled communities. And one, and the, the missions are just part of the, those settled communities that uh, Sarah established. I think something sometimes people tend to reduce the missions to just churches, things like, oh, he built these beautiful churches, which which he did. But the missions were part of a, a larger settlement that was, in my, my reading of the material, really, I mean, they never 
I haven't read a historian saying Sarah was trying to do this, but the way they describe it is he was trying to create like monasteries for these people to live in, to, you know, the, to regulate their life in the way that a, uh, a medieval monastery uh, regulated the lives of its inhabitants. Though, you know, he's doing it in a uh, setting with families and such, but they were, uh, they were economic units. They, you know, he, he tried to teach them farming and, and cattle ranching and things like that to make them self-sufficient and stable and settled. So as uh, first self-sufficient to keep them uh, far from the Spanish, um, uh, but also to uh, enable the, the faith to grow, you know, mm-hmm. to get that, that economic base that he thought was essential to, uh, to evangelization. You, you mentioned the French, and we, we can talk about them, that the Jesuits coming from France, how and where did they get to the New World? Yeah, well, the, um, the French settlements were, uh, of course, in what is now uh, Canada, or mostly it's kind of the, the Northeast. I mean, the, the Great Lakes, kind of St. Lawrence River, Great Lakes area, and you know <laughs> the national boundaries that we now uh, have uh, didn't really mean much then. So there's uh, just so just think of that general part of uh, of the world. It'd be you know, Western New York would be would be included in that, and they came. Uh, French French settlement, French uh, uh, conquest and exploration were were fairly limited in the 16th century because France was <laughs> in a state of constant civil war, at least in the second half. Um, but and different different religious orders had been sent earlier uh, with not much effect, and, and there's lots of reasons for that. But when the the French evangelization evangelization efforts are pursued in earnest, it is in the 1630s with the Jesuits that are kind of handpicked by Richelieu, actually. Richelieu, you know, has his various reasons for, for things, but uh, one thing that he recognized in the Jesuits was just their, uh, their, their rigor and their intelligence and their organization. They were the, the great kind of uh, Catholic Reformation order that, that kind of uh, left all the others in the dust uh, and uh, they certainly, when they um, went to New France to evangelize, they brought all of the, the great intellectual skills that they had developed um, as leaders of the universities in, in Europe at that time, but brought them to bear on, in one sense, the simplest of people. There's a great quote from Brebeuf, and I can't quote it exactly, but here's a rough paraphrase, is that he's, he's talking to his fellow Jesuits who are all like the, you know, the best educated men in Europe, and he's preparing them to go out into the hinterland of, uh, of Canada. And he says, let the Huron language uh, be your Aristotle and St. Thomas. You know, and, and he, it, it wasn't uh, just, here's another intellectual challenge. I mean, it, it was that, but um, it's interesting the way he talks about it. It's not just like, well, you have to put your high learning aside um, and, uh, and try to convert these people. But he talked about it as a kind of a humbling and humiliating experience itself, but in a, in a good way, in a, in a spiritual way. He says, you know, you'll, you'll find yourself uh, just thankful if you can say the most basic things to these people. And there's a kind of leveling that goes on there. I and mean, certainly a tendency, you know, when the civilized people of Europe go and there's, you, you find this kind of hunter-gatherer civilization, a tendency to see, to just assume your own superiority. But um, Grebeuf tried to kind of refocus it and say, well, you know, when it comes to the language, we're, we're children, we're the uncivilized ones, but we need to meet them at the level of language in order to uh, to convert them. And uh, again, they, they did, 
made heroic efforts at that. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. What, what happened to French Catholicism in the New World after the French and Indian War had uh, largely destroyed French political power there? Yeah, well, the, there's kind of the story of the French in the New World up to that point is there's, there's two stories. There's this great uh, story of Jesuit evangelization in the early 17th century. That kind of comes to an end largely because of the, the wars, the wars with the Iroquois. Uh, that are all involved in various European wars. But the, the other story is the establishment of the great cities in Quebec City and Montreal. And these cities are, they were grander and are still <laughs> pretty grand, but certainly grander than anything that the English had established uh, at that time. Um, though, though, though compared to the, the English colonies, sparsely populated. So these beautiful cities cities of stone, if you will, but not a lot of people there. They, um, they lose uh, the, the great war for empire uh, to the British, uh, but in losing it, they get something that was unimaginable elsewhere in the, the British world. Uh, they get toleration. Uh, you know, for 10 years or so, they don't, the British don't really know what to do with them. They're trying to figure out what to do with all these, this land they've just acquired. And there's, you know, some of these colonists in what will become the United States who are giving them a hard time. Um, so they're trying to deal with that struggle among uh, that, you know, the rebellion among uh, English Protestants in the colonies, and then still trying to figure out what to do with all these Catholics. And they, in the end, by 1774, they, uh, they passed the Quebec Act, which allows toleration for Catholics in Quebec. Something that just to, is, to keep in mind as a point of comparison, uh, they wouldn't dare allow anything like that in Ireland at this time. You know, Ireland is you know overwhelmingly Catholic, but the, the church is illegal in, in mm. Ireland pretty much. You know, there are penal laws, and that Quebec Act, which did uh, uh, give uh, toleration to Catholics in Quebec, uh, did two things. First, uh, when the uh, English colonists to the south were thinking about a rebellion. The, uh, the the Catholics in Quebec said, "Well, what do we have to rebel against? We we actually have a pretty good deal here, better than we could have ever imagined." And then on top of that, the very fact of toleration in Quebec added fuel to the fire of the English colonists because they that for them was just feeding into this conspiracy theory that. Uh, you know, the king was going to take over the colonies and he was going to establish Catholicism here because look, you know, look at how close these Catholics are and they're being tolerated as if they're actual Christians or something. And hmm. so um, the end story of uh, French, uh, French colonial period actually has a significant uh, effect uh, or influence on the developments in the founding of the United States. When we turn to the United States, you, you, you have a lot on the Calverts, 
and in, in the colonies. Who, who were they and what did they do? Yeah, the, the Calverts were, uh, were English Catholics. Uh, they would have, this, is, this is going now into the late 16th, early 17th century, uh, so the, the, the English colonial period, British colonial period. And Catholics at that time, again, in England, a small minority, but uh, influential beyond their numbers because they tended to be among the nobility. You know, the, the, your average, you know, if you were a peasant and you wanted to stay a Catholic, you didn't have much chance at that. But if you were a nobleman, you did because uh, you had power, you had standing in society, you had property. And even the, the Protestants, nobles, didn't like the idea of the king confiscating property just because you were Catholic, because they thought, hmm, well, if, if today it's because someone's a Catholic, tomorrow it might be because, well, the king just doesn't like you. So that, that gave uh, uh, Catholic nobles uh, uh, some power so that they were al- kind of allowed to just uh, recuse themselves from Anglican services. Uh, so they were, it was, it wasn't, certainly wasn't official toleration, but it was just almost like a don't ask, don't tell policy. But for some Catholics, uh, this was not enough that they, uh, they, they looked to the new world in, in part for, uh, to uh, kind of a safety valve for some Catholics uh, to live a life that maybe was freer than they had in England, but also to, uh, they looked to the new world for financial investment the financial investment in which their faith wouldn't work against them as much as it, it did in England. Because uh, when it came to settling the colonies, the, the Stuarts uh, weren't too particular about who did it, as long as they weren't enemies of the crown. And, and the, through these connections, the noble connections and service in government, the Calverts were friends of the Stuarts. And uh, so the Stuarts were willing, you know, they, they couldn't, oh, once the, the Calverts went back and forth between Catholic and Anglican, but once they uh, had firmly uh, committed to the Catholic Church, you know, James and Charles Stuart couldn't, you know, openly embrace them, but they could say, hey, here's some land over in, in, in the New World, do what you can with it. And what they ended up doing, this is the founding of Maryland, is taking a, a chunk from what was then Virginia, uh, a chunk of the, the Chesapeake, the Northern Chesapeake, and giving it to the Calverts, which uh, did not please the the Protestants of Virginia, who, who, who resented it for and off and went to war at times against uh, Maryland when the opportunity arose. But so these Calverts were the the founding family of Maryland, and this is one of the great stories that Catholic American Catholic historians over the generations always go back to, uh, because it, it really is the first instance of uh, the kind of religious toleration that we associate with the American founding. If there's not a direct link, or anything, but the, um, when the Calverts founded Maryland, they did not found it as a Catholic colony. They, they, they couldn't do that. That would be going too far. But the, the wording of, of the charter was such that and pretty much anyone who, anyone who was a Christian could be uh, allowed to settle there and there are all these kind of uh, speech codes, if you will, almost laws saying, and you can't talk about all these things, you know, all, all these uh, things that would have uh, caused controversy among Christians, you can't talk about them. And then when, when things heated up, they actually did in, in the time of the English Civil War, pass official toleration acts. Those were uh, abolished by Cromwell because the toleration included Catholics, but it's that, that Maryland tradition 
that again, later uh, American Catholic historians or just American Catholics in general uh, who knew of this would look back to and say, hey, we were the first. And you know, there, there's, there's some uh, there's some validity to that, but still, it's just there is a difference between what the the, the, the practical toleration that the Maryland Catholics were trying to uh, achieve in the 17th century and the, the, the principle of disestablishment that was in, in the Constitution. Right. There's much more in, in the book. We, it goes through the, the centuries. We've got discussions of the, the American frontier, an interesting uh, tract by Lyman Beecher called A Plea for the West uh, is discussed. Discussed are the, those infamous Blaine Amendments, uh, the nativism issue as Catholic immigrants uh, poured poured into uh, the, the country. What happened in the 1920s with some of the anti-Catholic uh, uh, sentiment buildup. But for now, the book is American Pilgrimage, A Historical Journey Through Catholic Life in a New World. Professor Shannon, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.